Hello and welcome to The Five Things, This Week in Social. Each week, we take five stories in social media out of the hamper, wash them, dry them, fold them, and put them back in the drawer so that you never have to wonder, did I wear that last week? We've got Tommy Boyce here. Hi, Tommy. Hi, Joey. Love your metaphors today. Oh, thank you. All right, so I've got a question for you. What is the strangest thing that the algorithm thinks you're obsessed with? It's not strange, but I am constantly on Fiona Apple TikTok. Like, as soon as I think I get off it, because I have to click, like, listen, I love my girl Fiona. I'm not that sad. And I just don't want it to kill my vibe when I'm on the app trying to, you know, like, laugh or see cute puppy videos or whatever I'm on TikTok for. And it just keeps me back on Fiona Apple TikTok. I have no idea why. Interesting. Well, Amanda Davis is here as well. Hi, Amanda. Hey, Joey. Same question to you. What does the algorithm like think that you just can't get enough of? Something about the algorithm thinks that I am a master chef that invests time and money into my trade, which I do not. It gives me TikTok recipes, really nice cookware, things of the sort. I will never make a a food item from a TikTok video. I'll say it out loud so maybe they hear me. (laughs) Well, now they know. I'm Joey Scarillo, and TikTok thinks that I'm obsessed with behind the scenes at Disney World. No idea why. Haven't been to Disney World since 2012, but that's just a weird thing. Anyway, so here are the five things. First up, Amanda tells us about YouTube paying podcasters to create film content. Then Tommy talks about Amazon, who launched AMP, a radio service music app. We're noticing a theme here. Then Amanda tells us about Twitter, who dropped their 2022 conversation trends report, which should be really interesting. Tommy breaks down a report that details the importance of first-party authentication with influencer marketing. And finally, Amanda tells us about Instagram, who launched updated creator tags. All right, let's dive in and start with Amanda telling us about YouTube paying podcasters. This one's exciting for us. YouTube is reportedly offering podcasters up to $300,000 to create video versions of their podcasts. So this would be, again, the video that accompanies the recording of the podcast um, and other kind of BTS exclusive content. Right now, this is kind of focused on some of the podcasts that are already hosted on the platform, podcasts like the H3 podcast, the Full Sin podcast, and Logan Paul's Impulsive, which I've never said out loud. But what's really interesting here is that clearly they're trying to fill a need for additional supplementary content associated with the podcast that might be audio only on their platform. And I think too, understanding their role in creating engaging content that really centers around personalities and influential voices is just another way that they can kind of grow this audience and and keep more eyeballs on the platform. I think it's super interesting. That is super interesting, Amanda. And this is really exciting for podcasters. Who knows, maybe we could end up on YouTube someday. It's not out of the world of possibility and you could all see our faces. But I am curious, Tommy, do you go to YouTube for podcast-like content? Are there creators out there that create podcasts that you also follow on YouTube or vice versa? I don't actually. The closest thing is a couple of podcasts I listen to will film themselves and post it on a reel. And I'll get that on my Explorer and watch it. But otherwise, to me, podcasts are strictly an audio medium. And I like it that way. I just think unless there's a way to make it visually interesting enough, you're just kind of watching people talk. And I'm like, okay, I can I can listen to a podcast while I'm walking or cooking or whatever, instead of sitting at my computer and just, you know, watching people just talking to each other in chairs or whatnot. So I don't really I don't really go to YouTube or I don't really look for visual components as a part of my podcast experience. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so I 
I actually follow a channel on YouTube that uh, also has a podcast, but I think of them as YouTube content first. Um, Amanda, do you have any uh, examples similar to that? Yeah, and I think also we we have probably some similar overlap too, because you think about radio shows like The Breakfast Club, which famously a lot of that content is shared through a video, almost recap of what that live audio sounds like. And I think too, it's almost a different behavior. It's like a different entertainment behavior than you listen to podcasts to kind of sit down and digest and listen. But when we get served podcast content in our Instagram, feed or we look at kind of BTS or we want to share a conversation with someone after the conversation has happened, a lot of times that does show up in a video format. I think it's great. I I think it's awesome that YouTube is reaching out to a new section of creators and trying to bring them onto the platform. I, I see this only as upside for YouTube and for the creators, as long as they don't mind making a little bit of video content too and keeping that as engaging as their podcast. All right, Tommy, let's jump over to Amazon who just launched AMP. Yeah, so this is a fun one. And it's time to break out our favorite phrase on the pod, Clubhouse clone. Um, So Amazon has launched its long rumored audio app, AMP, a platform that allows users to essentially host their own radio show with the music they choose. Users who sign up will be able to host their own live radio show, complete with the ability to stream tens of millions of licensed songs from any of the big three record labels and a long list of indies. Hopefully, like, I can play The National when I'm sad on AMP, according to Amazon. The goal is to turn any user into a radio DJ able to program a playlist, talk to listeners, and chat with call-in guests. And a big thing to note is that hosts and listeners won't need to subscribe to any service to tune in. Anyone can listen to full-length songs as long as they sign up for AMP, which is free, which that's amazing. There's no buried entry. Now, there's a difference between AMP and Clubhouse we do have to point out and how they're positioned. Um, It's not really a clone. Think of AMP as more of a radio service than a live chat service that Clubhouse or even Twitter Spaces is offering. But none of those platforms have the music licensing agreements in place that AMP does through Amazon. So I think Amazon has a chance to do something really unique here. They're already bringing in celebrity guests like Nicki Minaj, Tinashe, Pusha T, and more to kick things off. And there's already moderation for this. So it looks like it's just raring to go. And I think AMP is a really exciting uh, opportunity, especially because of its music licensing. The fact that there's not any other platform out there that offers the same experience gives it a major leg up. And it allows brands and marketers interested in entering the audio space new opportunities in how they want to take part and show up. So maybe people don't want to go to a brand's audio conference, but you know, if Gillette's playing the pink print, I would show up and tune into that radio show. So I think that audio space is heating up more and more. There's going to be a lot of new competition stemming from this launch. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how platforms continue to innovate. I'm looking forward to seeing how people take advantage of the music library offered by AMP. Yeah, Tommy. So this actually reminds me of something that Spotify put out a couple of years ago, maybe two. They were encouraging people to use their anchor service, which is a podcast hosting service, which would allow you to make a podcast with the full music library from Spotify. But again, just similar to this, it's exclusive to just Spotify. So you would only be able to listen to that podcast on Spotify because of the music licensing. But I think this is actually great for users who want to create something that is live like Clubhouse and brings in that music. So I think this is like a nice Venn diagram of the two services between Clubhouse and what Spotify was putting out a couple of years ago. We sort of touched on brands getting into this space. But what do you think, Amanda? Do you think this is something where brands could have an opportunity to get into host red ads or or find their place on AMP? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is almost more suited for brands to jump into than perhaps some other platforms might be because really this service is offering curation and creating a sense of um, 
cohesiveness between a playlist. So in previous, you know, a Spotify analog version of a playlist is great, but you really want to be able to tie all of these songs together, have a narrative, have some kind of experience that feels like the viewer is really engaged with and kind of consistently understanding the meaning behind this curation. So I think when you think about brands and creators using this, it is a different kind of content creation that I think people will get really excited about. It reminds me of my first experience with this kind of format was Frank Ocean had Blonded Radio, which started in, I want to say like 2017. And it was kind of the first time that we saw or the first time that I saw this merge of conversation and music as a fluid experience together that obviously comes from, you know, reminiscent of like DJ sets and and radio sets. But I think it's fascinating. And I think it's it really leans on that curation and what brands can do to support that. Yeah, could be really exciting. All right, let's jump into Twitter's 2022 conversation trends report. Amanda, why don't you break that down for us? All right. So Twitter has dropped a new report that really recaps what people are talking about and a lot of the conversation trends that are happening on the platform. It's really detailed. It has a lot of information to it, but they recapped kind of these trends in three different buckets. The first one they're calling the Great Restoration. And this really shows kind of this consumer shift in people slowing down, kind of meditating, taking a moment to regroup and restore and on Twitter, you know, sharing advice for how to do that, resources that help them kind of reset and keep their mindfulness front and center. So I think the idea of using social media platform to reset and kind of recenter themselves is probably a little bit surprising. But you can start to think about for brands, like, how can we help drive that movement and drive that appetite to reset, to unwind, to check out, to meditate, to center someone and using social media to do that. The second bucket they're calling fan built worlds. And it's really around this fandom that happens around TV shows and artists and NFT artists and communities that are creating and are really driven by the creators and the fans that are really vocal and you know how they support that. It also includes, again, this idea of user run curation and creation. So we think of Patreons and these sub stacks and newsletters and things, again, that really drive this one-to-one user community forward and how they are supporting each other on that platform to do so. The last bucket they're calling um, finance goes social. So I think too, we've probably all read that Vox article around how money has kind of become a hobby, especially for Gen Z and millennials to really share their expertise, information around crypto and decentralized finance, NFTs, banks, transparency, like all of these conversations, a lot of them are happening on Twitter. And this candidly used to be like a very taboo topic. People didn't really talk about money for a long time. But now that the world is kind of shifting their perspective on how does money work? What does it do? Being driven by this Web3 movement, it's become a very open conversation and one that's driving a lot of social interaction and conversation on the platform. Very interesting. So of these three buckets, Tommy, which of them do you think jumps out to you the most? I think fan built worlds, I think now it's it's such a buzzword, but we talk about like parasocial relations and Twitter to me is such a, it's a hotspot for stan culture and people who really take ownership of artists and base not just like personalities, but the way they show up online about the artists they interact with and the way they consume their culture and connect about the culture they put out. I mean, you think about like BTS stands or Things like how an artist like Charlie XCX gave her fans behind the scenes access during the making of her How I'm Feeling Now album and like the connections that forged that still run deep, you know, a year and a half or so later, two years later, almost, geez, we're almost two years of COVID, guys. That's a lovely note. And I think that conversation happens so, so often on the app. And I see it so often that that to me, I understand it, but then seeing it pointed out on this trend report, it's like, oh yeah, 
Like that is what makes Twitter such a unique space over anything else. And I would also say the trend about finance. That's a, if you have not read it, that Fox article is wonderful. And I think, Amanda, what you said is true. It's not just a recent trend, but this about NFTs, but this whole new way of how we talk about money and approach money as a way to, again, form connections and communities is fascinating. And I think it's really important for us to take note of that and see how people are adapting to this new way of approaching just commerce. Yeah, it's amazing to see how the world shifts and the conversation shift across generations, but then even across years and how things that we weren't talking about two years ago are now things that we're talking about now. All right, so let's turn it back over to you, Tommy, and talk about the importance of first-party authentication. I want to get into this. This should be exciting. Take it away. Yeah, so this is an article uh, or write-up that comes from Daniel Wiley, the founder and CEO of Sway Group, which is an agency that specializes in influencer marketing, branded content, and you know digital advertising. And in it, she writes about the importance of first-party authenticated data in regards to influencer marketing. And while this isn't as flashy as, you know, the fun brand creator partnerships that happen on TikTok, without this verified first-person data, marketers can't actually trust the metrics they're getting from their influencer campaigns or be certain whether the influencers that they partner with actually have the audience demographics that they claim or that the goal is that they're tapping into. And so while we are used to having to rely on influencers self-reporting their results, today, influencers can actually authenticate their profiles from many of the major social networks, you know, like Instagram, YouTube, et cetera, all the big platforms, you know, through an approved API partnership program for increased access to data. And brands that engage in influencer marketing can now access analytics data directly from the platforms themselves, rather than relying on the influencer for this reporting. And this is what she means by first party data, influencer data that comes directly from the platform. And this data gives the campaign engagement metrics and audience demographics modern brands need to fine tune outreach and prove ROI. And not only that, but it also ensures a deeper and more accurate understanding of a creator's audience before a campaign even begins. So I guess net net, it's more important than ever for brands and marketers to try and make sure that influencers are platform authenticated and that they're getting first party data to be sure that their campaigns are effective as possible achieving the goals they set out to achieve. Amanda, so obviously we love data, marketers love data. Do we think that with this new authentication, it'll make our jobs as agency folks trying to connect brands with influencers, will it make our job a little bit easier? I don't know that it will make our job easier, but what I do think it will do is make our job more effective. And I say that because this is falling into a larger conversation from a digital media perspective, not just with influencers, but also with websites, with media publishers, understanding with the loss of cookies. Again, cookies is one particular way that we gather information about audience online. It's not the only way. And it's kind of a hack way that we ended up creating our our normal around. So I think, you know, we lose our we, we're losing the cookies, which is I think a great win for you know the audience. But we start to move into first party and what's called zero party data, where people can proactively share information about themselves and kind of own that presence online. So I think to your point, we'll see a lot of these conversations happen. Of where is this data coming from? How legitimate is it? And again, being able to legitimize data only makes it show up more effectively. But it might be different than the way that we would assess a different type of data before. So I think as it relates to influencer marketing, is really fascinating as it relates to even the rest of our digital media presence online is going to be a continued conversation and it will eventually help us improve. That's part of why cookies are are going away and, and kind of being banned because we want transparency and we want effectiveness and we want measurable results. So more to watch in this space. Welcome to the future, the future of advertising. All right, let's wrap this up with Instagram launching updated creator tags. Over to you, 
Amanda. So this is a, a good one, I will say. Instagram has launched a new tag type, which essentially allows creators to tag the collaborators in the photo. And instead of just tagging their username, they will also associate the kind of industry and how they contributed to the product that you're seeing in front of you. So this might look a way that shows your username and under it, it might say photography or set design or hair and makeup or whatever that contributor wants to identify themselves as being support on. So I think this is obviously a great addition. But I think what's even more interesting about it and more able to be celebrated is that this is really intended from Instagram's point of view to celebrate and identify and give proper credit to marginalized and underrepresented creators on the platform. I think we see platforms like TikTok where there is a conversation around how marginalized communities and creators are not properly credited with pushing the culture forward and starting trends. So I think, you know, not only is it great that Instagram launched it in this way, but I think being very clear and transparent about why they're doing it and what they're trying to change is not something that we may have seen from the platform again five years ago, but it's something that is unignorable and I think is the right conversation to start and, and reason to do this. Yeah, unignorable is an amazing word. And, uh, you know, any, any opportunity you have to bring more people in and give credit where it's due, never a bad thing. Tommy, what do you think? I think this is a really great move by Instagram. I saw this. I was like, oh, wow, it's great that artists, I first thought of people like a Dua Lipa who works with designers or a drag queen who works with designers and makeup artists or makeup brands to credit them. But then seeing how Instagram even referenced TikTok and being like, hey, a lot of popular TikTok trends were made by Black creators and popularized by white creators and white dancers. And using that as a reason for this, I thought was remarkable. And I think it's a really great step forward. If you're just giving credit where credit is due, so often, Amanda, you said, I'm not adding anything new to this, but you know, so much content and culture comes from marginalized creators that is then adopted and adapted by white creators. And so it's just, I think, fantastic that Instagram is recognizing that and working with it and trying to make a change. And I think this will be really great for highlighting, you know, creators who are behind the scenes and giving them a platform and a chance to shine in a way that they currently don't have. So I'm all for this new update. I think it's great. Absolutely. Always a good thing. All right, let's wrap this up, my friends. Uh, if you don't already, be sure to follow us on all your favorite podcast apps. And who knows, someday, maybe even on YouTube. Share this with your friends, families, clients, coworkers, everybody you know. And if you've got questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, email them to us at podcasts at gray.com. Want to thank Amanda and Tommy for joining us. And thanks to Danielle and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes. Thank you. See you next week. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.